Let's pray. Father, we trust the promise that your word does not return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose that you have for it. We stand on that now as we come to study your word. May it minister to us. May it reveal Christ to us. May we be drawn closer to him, see him as more glorious, more sufficient for all of our needs more satisfying for all of our desires. We thank you for the salvation that is ours in him as we've just sung so beautifully about. And we pray that we would, uh, we would all learn and be served by your word uh, as we study it today. So give me strength now as I come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at Bible Fellowship, and I'm happy to, to be up here this morning. You'll remember last week, if you were here, uh, that we started a, a little two-part series that were called The Marks of a Disciple. And so what we did is we started with our mission statement as a church, which many of you are familiar with, and because we, we talk about it all the time, that we want to be a church that's advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. We said, well, but, but the word disciple can be confusing, and we don't use it a whole lot in our, in our everyday vocabulary. It's a kind of a churchy word, and so we said, we, we need to be careful to define what that means. If you remember, if you were here, that I talked about how I had trouble defining what Cool Whip was uh, last week. If you don't know what that is, go back and listen to the sermon. It's like a big inside joke now. Um, one of, uh, one of our men's ministry leaders saw me afterwards and said, you have a new nickname, Captain Cool Whip. It's, like, it's not exactly what I was going for. So well, we, we said, okay, we need, definitions matter. The way that we define something matters. And so we need to talk about what a disciple is. And so briefly, I shared that the, the way that we're talking about what a disciple is here is that a disciple is a forgiven follower of Jesus who is growing to become like him. We looked at a couple passages of Scripture and, uh, that demonstrated that, and then we said, okay, now Jesus said that his disciples would be known by their fruit. They would be known by the kind of lives that they lead. And so what are those things that should mark a disciple's life? And so we introduced this image and, and this kind of paradigm saying that, that a disciple's life should be marked by loving God and loving others and living for Christ. So last week, Pastor Tom took us through those first two marks. What does it mean to love God? And what does it mean uh, to love others? And this focus on that final one. What does it mean to live for Christ? Now, if I were to take a survey of this room, my guess is that we'd probably get about 200 different answers as to what it means to live for Christ. And, and, and it doesn't mean that they're, that they're all wrong or anything like that. But if we're going to be using this as kind of a foundational principle for our church, we all want to be on the same page, building off the same blueprint. And so we're going to talk today about what we mean when we say live for Christ as it relates to being a mark of a disciple. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
you don't have a Bible, our ushers would be happy to give you one. And if you don't own a Bible, this one is yours to keep. It's our gift to you. We would love to have you take this Bible home and read it. We believe the Bible is the Word of God and that He speaks to us through it, which is why every Sunday we, we come to Scripture seeking to know what God is teaching us. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians 5, and, and based on this passage of Scripture, we're going to argue that being, uh, being a disciple, living for Christ, means primarily being an ambassador for Christ. Again, there's lots of different ways that we could define it, but when we're using it as a part of this idea of what a disciple is, we mean living for Christ as being an ambassador uh, for Christ. We draw that language right out of, out of this passage. So we're going to see, Paul talks about being an ambassador, and he talks about living for him. Uh, and so we're going to explore, first in this passage, the priorities of an ambassador, second, the perspective of an ambassador, and third, the purpose of an ambassador. Right? Priorities, perspective, purpose. So we'll start in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so I want to make a couple comments here about this. I think this, this, uh, these couple of verses are really teaching about what it means to have adjusted priorities. If we are disciples of Christ, if we are to be ambassadors for Christ, in the context, Paul's defending his ministry. And so he's saying, look, this is, this is what my ministry is about. Uh, and so if we're all going to be ministers of the gospel and ambassadors for Christ, we need to have adjusted priorities. So the first thing that he says is that, is that we need to no longer live for ourselves. In fact, he says that Jesus died for all so that they who live, those who have been made alive spiritually through faith in him, might no longer live for themselves. And the implication there is that it's our, our natural bent to live for ourselves. Right? If you're a parent, you know as you deal with your children that they come into this world and their primary concern is to live for themselves. Right? My son is, is about a year and a half, and his concern is to get what he wants. Right? We, we are naturally wired, because of our sin, to live for ourselves. And this takes many different forms. Right? You don't have to be an out-and-out -out narcissist to live for yourself. We can be really subtle about this. So I was reading a book this week, and I found this quote, and I thought this was very profound for what we're talking about. The author said, Your true religion is what you delight in, the things that most excited your heart and make life worth living are pointers to where you place your ultimate hope. Say it differently, those, those things that you lie in bed at night thinking about, that, that thing that crosses your mind first thing in the morning when you wake up before you've had to think about anything else, 
that might be a pointer to what you value most. That might be a pointer to what you are worshiping, to where, to, 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 to the pointer to the, the thing that you are living for. So think about it this way. I'm going to ask you this question. If you were to say, if I just had this, then life would be worth living. Or, if this was taken away, life would no longer be worth living. Okay, fill in the blank. What came to your mind? That might be an indication of what you're living for. So we can say on paper, oh yes, yes, we're living for Christ. That's what we're all about. But our priorities, our desires, those things that cross our mind, we have nothing else to think about. Those can be pointers to where our true hope is. So I'm going to give you some examples. Money. If I just had more money, more financial security, then life would be worth living. Sex. If I could just sleep with this person, if I could just have this experience, then I would be fulfilled. Approval. If this person would just like me, if I could get everybody to like me, then I would have made it. Family. If only I could have the perfect family, if my kids would spend more time with me, then life would really be worthwhile. Success. If I could only do something great and be recognized for it. Relationships. If only I could get married and find the right person, then life would really be worth living. How about this one? Sports. Some of you live for the next game that's going to be on. Some of you right now are checking on your phone, your fantasy lineup for later today. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-sports, okay? So don't send me any emails. <laughs> but if that's the thing that occupies your mind and, and drives you and you're like, I can't wait for the next game and if they were to take away this sport, life would no longer be fun, life would no longer be worth living, you may need to do a discount double check on your priorities. <laughs> so we can so easily turn things that are, are good into things that we worship and they become idols and we live for them. So, but what Paul teaches is that Jesus died to free us from having to live for ourselves and live for all of these other things that give us pleasure, our, our priorities, our desires. But he doesn't only free us from living for ourselves, he also frees us to enable us to live for him. So verse 15, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So Christ's death doesn't only forgive our sins, it's not just a get to heaven free ticket, or as Pastor Tom would say, a get out of hell free card. It also transforms the way we live right now. Christ's work really frees us. We are no longer enslaved to live for ourselves. 
See, apart from Christ, we have no choice but to live for ourselves. And we do it, and we do it really well. But in Christ, we have the freedom, because we've been made new, to live for Him and His priorities. But Christ's death doesn't just free us to be able to live for Him, it also motivates us to live for Him. If you look at the beginning of verse 14, Paul says, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. So, so Paul is saying that that thing that guides me, that thing that channels my purposes is the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for me. And specifically, it's a reference to his death. He says, because we have concluded this, that one died for all. And he goes on and says, and he did that so that we would not live for ourselves, but, but for him. It's very much like what Pastor Tom was talking about last week, what it means to love God. Loving God is not some effort that we stir up in ourselves and try to make ourselves acceptable to Him. We love because He first loved us. It's a response to the gospel, to the work of Christ. And so Christ's death not only frees us, it motivates us now to live for Him. We no longer want to live for ourselves. We want to live for Christ and what He desires, what he prioritizes. So we, so we as ambassadors uh, must begin with adjusting our lives' priorities. But what does that actually look like? So we'll move from the priorities of an ambassador, no longer living for self but for Christ, and now we'll move into the perspective of an ambassador. And th this is one of the key ways that we adjust our priorities and bring them in line with Christ's. And so as a result of adjusted priorities that we're taking on the priorities of Christ, an ambassador has an altered perspective, especially on people. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. So a couple quick comments. One um, is that when, when we read a word like therefore in Scripture, we need to stop and think about, well, how does that function? What's the therefore, therefore? Because the Bible is not just a collection of pithy sayings. It's telling one message. And so Paul in this book is writing. He's arguing something. And so everything he says is fitting together. And this word, therefore, is like a stitch. It's connecting verse 16 to verse 15. And so he just said, we're not to live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Therefore, so, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Like, as a result of the fact that we're no longer living for ourselves, we are now taking on a new perspective, we're no longer viewing people, and the way that the New American Standard says it is we're no longer recognizing people according to the flesh. Now, that's a, a phrase that probably doesn't resonate quite as much with us. We're like, recognize people according to the flesh. Like, what, is, what does that mean? 
And so this is a place where I think the NIV gets it right. The NIV says, we no longer view people from a worldly point of view. So now don't tell Pastor Tom that I said that the NIV was right. But, but I think that's the idea. We're no longer regarding people, we're no longer viewing people based on a worldly perspective. And, and the reason for that, that that Paul gives is because we're not doing that with Christ either. He's like, Paul's saying at one time, I thought Jesus was just a man. And now I know that's not the case. And so when Jesus comes in and changes our priorities, he changes our perspective on people and it matches his See, the way, if we're living for ourselves, the way that we are naturally inclined to view people is based on how they can or can't help us live for ourselves. We value people and we judge people based on what they can do for us. And so long as they are helping us accomplish our goal of living for ourselves, we are very friendly to them. But if they start getting in our way... Suddenly, we're no longer interested in them. We don't value them the same way anymore because we are viewing people from the world's point of view, which is we're using them. People are commodities. I mean, I think this even happens in, in good relationships, right? If you're a parent and you want your family, if you're living for your family and you're living to have the perfect family, so long as your kids are doing exactly what you want them to do, your, your attitude towards them is going to be good. But if they start getting in the way and start ruining your perfect family, that thing that you're living for, suddenly your perspective on them is shifting. And so, as a disciple of Christ... We are to take on a different perspective of people. We're to view people not from a worldly perspective, what they can do for us, but from an eternal perspective, the way that Christ views them. Look in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is the first verse that I ever memorized as a Christian. And, it, and it's a, a beautiful verse, and it talks about that if you're, if you're in Christ, you've been reborn. You, have, you don't just have a second chance, you have a second life. But, but I think it's connected here to what Paul has just said about the way we view people to, to, to point something out. Is that our perspective of people can no longer be to divide them up into groups based on outward appearance and what they can do for us. There's only two categories of people that matter anymore. Are they in Adam or are they in Christ? That's, I think, what Paul is getting at when he's talking about new and old. Old people are people in Adam, connected to Adam's sin and condemnation and death. And new people are gospel people, people who are in Christ, people who are connected to Jesus, his forgiveness, his life, and his blessing. Those are the only two categories that matter anymore. Because those are the only two categories that are going to matter for eternity. 
And so we can spend so much time dividing people up based on race and cultural background and the way they talk and who they vote for and where they shop and what they eat and all of these, these asinine categories. And they ultimately mean nothing. The only thing that matters now is do they know Jesus? That's it. And so if we're taking on Christ's priorities, then we need to be having His perspective of people, not a worldly perspective, but an eternal perspective. Are they in Adam or are they in Christ? And so how are you viewing people? By what they can do for you? Worldly standards, how much money they make, what their cultural background is, what their political opinions are? Or is it how God's view them? whether or not they know Jesus. So to be an ambassador, we need to have Christ's priorities, adjusted priorities that match Christ. We live for Him. And then we take on His perspective of people. We look at people the way that He looks at them. And then thirdly, I want to move to the purpose of an ambassador. With adjusted priorities, living for what Christ values... And an altered perspective on people, ambassadors embrace their purpose to advance the gospel. Let's look at verse 18 to 20. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. So, notice in those first two verses, Paul says, okay, we have been reconciled to God. This word reconciliation means bringing peace between two parties that were formerly separated. So, God has reconciled us to himself, even though we were separated from him by our sin. God, through Christ, has bridged that gap and made it possible for us to have a restored relationship with him. And so, the gospel, this good news about what Jesus has done, announces to us that reconciliation is possible. But, that's not all that God does with it. He doesn't just say, you've been reconciled to God, and that's it. He says, God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 19, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the gospel. And so we've also been not just reconciled, but enlisted to participate in the advancement of the gospel. So we've been entrusted with it, and now we have to communicate it. We have to communicate the gospel. So I want to make a couple comments on this. Number one is that lifestyle evangelism is not communicating the gospel. Now, there is a way of life, a manner of conduct that is appropriate 
that, is, that matches up, that is in line with the truth of the gospel. And we should seek to cultivate that kind of a lifestyle. And that's a lot of what we're talking about here in this series. Being people whose lives reflect that they have been saved and become disciples. But simply living a certain way is not communicating the gospel. So many of you have probably heard um, the saying, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words, or something along those lines. That is a very unhelpful statement. I think, I think it might even be unbiblical. Because here's the deal. The gospel isn't a lifestyle It's a message. There's content. There's things that happened historically. Jesus really lived. He really died. He really rose again. And if none of that's true, then we are wasting our time. But if it is true, then it's the best news that there ever was. And we tell people about it because they need to hear it. So I'll give you an example. And this is not just an illustration, this is true. I have news for you. My wife is 14 weeks pregnant. Thank you. Now, I do that for two reasons. One, now none of you can complain that I didn't tell you, right? So we just got everybody covered at once. But really the reason I tell you that is because if, if I were going to say, I have news, I have good news, my wife is pregnant, I want to share this with people. What do I do that with? My mouth. I tell people with words, right? I don't turn on Paul Anka's, you're having my baby, (laughs) and wait for people to ask, so uh, what's, you know, what's going on, right? I, I don't, I don't turn on Caleb and then hope that somebody asks, what must I do to be saved? Well, that's not bad, but it's not communicating the gospel. Look at how Paul does it. He doesn't say we've, uh, he says God has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the word, the message of reconciliation, the gospel. And then he says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And then what does he do? He makes an appeal with words. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul witnessed with his words. Now we should be living in a manner that is consistent with the gospel, absolutely. But that itself is not communicating the gospel. An ambassador is tasked to speak for the one who sent him. So we should view our our task in the same way. So uh, a couple things as as we're going to wrap up, a couple things I want you to think about. One is I want to ask you, how are you communicating the gospel to people? Now, I'll stand up here and uh, and people will say, well, you know, John... 
you know, we hear Pastor Tom talk about the way that he shares the gospel and, and that's so discouraging because I couldn't, I couldn't possibly do that. I can't do what Tom does. I know, me neither. So, but listen, a couple of things. One, Tom doesn't tell you those stories to impress you or to guilt you into doing things his way. He wants to encourage you that you can, you can share the gospel too. It's, it's simple. But, but there are ways that Tom does it that it just wouldn't work for me. So Tom can sit on a plane and turn to the person next to him and say, if you were to die tonight <laughs> and God asked, me, and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Right? But, but then what does the person do? They say, oh, I don't know. What must I do to be saved? Right? And the person gets saved, right? Now, that's not because Tom is talented. That's because that's the way that the Holy Spirit uses him to advance the gospel, right? So we're not, we're not holding Tom up like, here's this wonderful you know, evangelist. Tom's just trying to be faithful, all right? So let's put a moratorium on the I can't do things the way Tom does things, right? I want to hear that. Now, but what I can say is, is if I were to do the same thing, this is how it would go. So, uh, are you ready to die today? <laughs> and I'd get hauled off the plane in shackles. <laughs> now, but here's the thing. God's not asking me to do evangelism like Tom. He's asking me to do evangelism like John. He's asking you to share the gospel with people, with your words. But all of us are going to do it in different ways, in different relationships. We're not asking you to go down to the train station and hand out tracts. That's not the idea. But who's in your circle of influence? Who can you be praying for? You know, Paul gives some great admonitions in the book of Colossians where he says you should be praying for opportunities that you could make the gospel clear. And then as those opportunities come, that you make the most of them, you act with wisdom, you make sure that your conversation is seasoned with salt and full of grace. So are you doing things like that? Are you praying regularly for opportunities to communicate the gospel? Are you praying for the people who you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis? And then as those opportunities come, and they, and they come, are you taking advantage of them? Are you making the most of your opportunities? Remember, the, the goal of all of this is more disciples. The goal is more people who become forgiven followers of Jesus and grow to become like him. And so we communicate the gospel in order that people would become forgiven followers of Jesus. And we continue to communicate the truth of the gospel to them so that they might grow to become more like him and in turn would help others to do the same. That's what we mean when we talk about disciple making. We're forgiven followers of Jesus, helping others to become forgiven followers of Jesus so we can all grow to become more like him. We want it to be said of our church like it was said of the early church that the word of God 
kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. And God is at work in our church. It's so exciting to see what he's doing. And so we want to partner with him in this. In fact, if you skip down to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that first verse, Paul says, and working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We are, we are working together with God. Now, that doesn't mean that he does half and we do half. God's doing all the work, but we're partnering with him. So we're empowered by the Spirit to go out, to preach the gospel, that people will come to faith in Christ and will grow to become like him. So a couple potential opportunities come up, at least one potential and one for sure. Uh, one thing is some, some people, uh, maybe out there, you're like, I don't know how to, how to share the gospel with somebody. I have no idea. I, you know, and so what we want to do moving forward is to be able to provide some opportunities to, to get you some training on what it looks like to share the gospel. Both the content, those, those truths that we need to communicate to people, but then also conduct and, and, and ways to have conversations uh, and, and ways to think about your relationships in a redemptive way. So we don't have anything solid on the books for that yet, but that's something that we've been talking about doing at some point, so that you can be looking for things like that. But then, who are you speaking the truth of the gospel to consistently to help them grow? Who are you speaking the truth in love to? Are you connected at the church? And then, with the people you're connected to, are you doing that? Say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to how to disciple somebody like that. We just so happen to have an opportunity where you can learn how to do that. On October 17th, we're offering a discipler training seminar. We're, we're doing it in partnership with a missions organization who's going to come in, and, and I hope this is the first of many that we do and would really encourage you all to come. It'll be from 8.30 to 11.30 in the morning, and there'll be childcare and s- snacks and coffee and and all that stuff. And, and what we want is we want to start you know, working together off the same blueprint of what it means to be a disciple and looking at how do, we, how do we take the gospel to people and help them not just to become forgiven followers, but to grow to become like Jesus. And how do we do it consistently? How do we speak the truth in love to one another? So uh, you can sign up for that on the communication card, on the website. Um, please make it a priority to be there. This is if this is going to be the foundation of what our church is doing, we'd love to see this room packed uh, with people who want to learn how to communicate the gospel to people that we might all grow to become like Jesus. But here's the last thing. You can't be an ambassador for Christ. You can't be a disciple of Christ. You can't live for Christ and not yourself. You can't have Christ's perspective on people and not your own if you're not a forgiven follower of Jesus. And Paul ends this chapter with what what some commentators say is the very heart of the gospel. Sometimes we call it the great exchange, and I'll I'll explain why. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this follows on the tale of Paul saying, be reconciled to God. And so verse 21 gives us the, this is the reason you can be reconciled to God. This is the reason why you, you are separated from God, and this is the reason why that relationship can be restored. These are the grounds. And verse 21 can be a little confusing, and I've read it in many, many translations. In every translation, it seems a little bit convoluted, and, it's, and, uh, and so this is a good translation, but I, I want to quote from a different one that I think gives the idea a little more clarity. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. So Jesus, God in the flesh, never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He always lived for God's priorities. He always had the right perspective of people. He never lived for himself. He came to serve, not to be served. And so the only person ever who didn't deserve death for their sin... But God made him, though he never sinned, to, in the words of the New American Standard, to be sin, or probably to be the sin offering, to be the substitute for our sin. And so when Jesus died on the cross, what he was doing was bearing the wrath of God due to our sin. We just sang about it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Why? Because God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Jesus' death counts for yours if you'll have it. Jesus' new life, as He was raised from the tomb three days later, demonstrating that everything he said was true and that he now has the power over life and death and sin. Jesus' life, he offers to us to become new creations, people who are freed from punishment and bondage to sin and now can live for Jesus. And there are some of you here that are not reconciled to God. Your sins are not forgiven. You're in Adam. You're connected to Adam and his death and judgment. And so my plea with you is the same one that Paul makes. We beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You can leave this room right now knowing that you are forgiven if you trust Jesus. And so if you don't know where you're going, if you don't know what your eternal destiny is, if you know you're a sinner and know that God has no reason to forgive you, I invite you as we pray, ask Jesus to forgive your sin. He will. It's a gift of grace. You need only say the word and he will forgive you. Not because of anything that you've done to earn it, but solely because of what Christ has done as a gift of God's mercy. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the redemption that is ours in his blood. Thank you that you have made us new and are making us new, that you saved us and you are saving us. Help us, Lord, to reject ourselves, to live for Jesus, to view people the way you do. Give us boldness and courage and opportunities to speak the gospel and to make it clear as we ought to. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in our church. It is such a joy to be here. It is such a joy to minister with these people and to see the way that you're changing lives and that people are growing to become more like Jesus. Thank you. We pray that we would continue to, to be faithful to your word and that you would continue to work in and through us. But not that we might be glorified, but that in all things Jesus might be glorified. We pray through him who is our great high priest, who ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend.